Well, welcome to Gospel Church uh, online this week. Uh, it's a real joy to be able to welcome you to this, uh, to be able to uh, be together but apart. Um, we're, I mean, I say it every time, but we're so looking forward to the day when it's together, together, you know. Uh, I'm so keen for that. Uh, and it does look like it's moving forward. Cogs are moving behind the scenes here at Gospel Church. And, and if you're a part of our church, there's not really that behind the scenes. Uh, we're, we're very much all hands on deck at the moment, getting ready to, to be able to meet together again. So watch this space for what's going to be happening there. Uh, but today, uh, it's my, my real joy to be able to bring us to the Word of God and bring us to the Gospel of Luke in our series, Luke the Limitless Gospel. Um, and, and, and this passage in particular that we're coming to, to today really is one that has struck me this week, that has filled me with just wonder at our Saviour. Uh, just just amazement at who he is and, and has really, really hit me with the reality of, of who that calls us to be. Uh, and so I want to I ask you uh, first, open up in your Bibles. Uh, if you've got a Luke Scripture Journal, we're on page 58. We're in Luke chapter 7 from verse 36 this week. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us before we get into this. Jesus, I'm so excited by your word this week. I'm so thrilled by it, and yet, Lord, I feel this horrible pressure. I don't, I don't want to miss this opportunity. So, Spirit, we ask that you would speak through me today, that you would be moving in the hearts of people, and that you would build my faith in you, that you I would do it, and that you would use these words, you would use this flawed man uh, for the glory of you, Jesus, for the glory of our King. Uh, and so that we would be built up to see him more clearly and follow him more, uh, more. <laughs> when we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Yeah, like I said, this, this, is, this is really hit me this week. It's such an astounding display of grace and of how grace changes you that we get in this passage this week. Now, do you know the phrase... Uh, you've probably heard it, seeing is believing. Well, this week I, I decided, I don't always name my sermons, but I've decided to call this message this week, Believing is Seeing, because that's what we see here. Uh, it's, it's really the opposite of seeing is believing. Believing is seeing. Because what we see here in this passage is that believing in Jesus leads to seeing everything differently. And particularly, belief in Jesus, it changes and it must change how we see ourselves and how we see others. How we approach ourselves and how we approach others. You see, when we say seeing is believing, we, we don't really mean that seeing literally is believing, do we? I, I should say this. It, it's not that seeing is believing, it's that when you see it, you will believe it. That's what we mean when we say that, right? And when I say believing is seeing, what I mean is that when you believe in Jesus, it will change you. It will change the way that you see people. You will see the world, you will see the people of the world differently when you believe in Jesus. And this true story from the Gospel of Luke is all about believing and seeing. In fact, we're going to look at this today from the perspective of three different people, how they see people. 
the three different players in this story. Uh, and we're going to see how drastically differently they see people. So at the outset, a, a scene is set for us uh, to look in on here. And, and the two central speaking characters of the story and, and the one non-speaking character are introduced. And so we're just going to talk about the setup here before we start looking at this from their perspectives. It's fairly, fairly important that we see that what happens is in the view of others as well. It's not just these three people here. Probably, probably many others, actually. A lot of commentators will point out that uh, uh, it, was, it was a custom of the day, a very common custom, to invite a visiting teacher over, uh, like Jesus, uh, if you were someone like Simon, for, for what was a, a public meal. They would often have these houses that were built around a central courtyard. And in the courtyard, you'd have these meals where people would come and, and, and your, your guests would sit around the table but then others would stand. The public could kind of filter in and filter out and, and watch from the sidelines. They weren't guests in your house. They were spectators in the house. And, and the, the way that looked is that the, the guests, the actual guests, would recline. They would lay down, resting on, on their left arm and, and eating with the right arm, with their, with their feet pointed away from the table because the feet were considered to be inherently unclean things. And the public would, would gather on the rims of this uh, as the spectators, like I said. And so this is probably the context of this meal. We're going to assume that because it seems like this is that type of meal. Simon invites Jesus over. Jesus accepts. And then we, we get introduced to the third character, right? The woman. And, and, and when Luke writes a woman of the city who was a sinner... Uh, we must understand that is almost certainly kind of a turn of speech, a, a nice way of saying she was a prostitute. This was a, a significant known sinner of the city, uh, probably a prostitute. As the meal gets underway and as the onlookers kind of are embracing themselves, they're anticipating themselves to some really lively conversation, they get something else entirely, don't they? This, this woman, carrying an extremely expensive jar of perfume, bursts through the onlookers. And it was expensive, by the way. These jars of perfume in the day were these things in an alabaster jar that was completely enclosed. There wasn't some screw top on it. That wasn't a thing yet. You had to break it to get the, the, the ointment, the, the, the perfume, the oil out. And once you broke it, it was single use. And they were astoundingly expensive to get. And most women would wear them as a pendant around their neck or keep them on a shelf as a display item rather than as something that you would use because they were so expensive. Uh, so this woman, though, she comes bursting through the onlookers, breaking the fourth wall of this little scene at the table in a shocking way. And we can imagine the onlookers, they're reeling back, knowing who she was, knowing what she was from their perspective, really. And her presence alone in the house of a Pharisee was probably enough for someone to start going, security, can we, can we, yeah. But, but it's hard to overstate the, the inappropriateness, the, the cultural outrageousness of what she does next. 
First, she falls at the feet of Jesus. Remember, pointing away from the table here. So easy access. Feet that we're going to lay here were still unwashed, having come in off from the mucky, dusty streets of this town. And, uh, and, and she's overcome with emotion and she starts to wash his feet with her tears, wet them with her tears. And if that weren't enough, she lets down her hair and dries the feet with them. Now, now we've got an abundance of gasp moments for the crowd here, right? When this woman bursts in, when she starts crying. When, but, but this is probably the big one, really, is the letting down of the hair. You see, Jewish women did not let their hair down in public. This isn't something we get today, uh, but it was something that everyone in the room would have got instantly how wrong this was in the cultural moment there. To give you an idea of how serious this moment is right then, the, the Talmud, uh, which is kind of the central book of, of law in, in Jewish culture, uh, apart from the, the, the Old Testament, uh, said that a woman could be divorced by her husband if she let down her hair in the presence of another man. Gets, it gets listed in that same law a, a, alongside toplessness, for instance, to give you an idea of how outrageous this moment was. It was so shameful an act. And what we're not saying is that she was being erotic, that she was doing what she had to do to dry his feet without care for the consequences or the public. You see, as she wets his feet with her tears, she has no other way to dry them. And so this emotional wreck of a woman lets down her hair, ignorant to the shame. Perhaps, perhaps just not caring about the shame. And she dries the feet of Jesus. And finally, she, she cracks the alabaster jar open and, and anoints his feet with ointment. It seems that she didn't think herself worthy to do the traditional one and, and anoint him on the head, but she anoints his, his feet in a show of modesty. And she kisses his feet. Can, can you imagine, we probably can't really imagine, but try to imagine the silence here. The awkwardness, the, the oddness of this moment. And now our scene is set for us, right? It's set to understand how these real-life characters see the people around them. And, and the first one we get off the rank is, is Simon. And Simon, the Pharisee, is all about the public opinion, from what we can tell. And when he looks at people, he sees props and problems, props and problems for his reputation. He sees himself in light of what others think of him, and he sees others in light of what they can get for him. Simon the Pharisee wants to be seen as righteous, as good, and as noteworthy too. I think that's, a, that's really clear from the start of this story. He sees Jesus as a prop to his reputation, doesn't he? A noted visiting teacher is in his town, so he invites him over for a public meal so that people can see that he has this teacher in his house. They can see the kind of uh, 
respected or intellectual or, or, or noteworthy company that he keeps. We know that Simon actually didn't invite Jesus over out of a deep-set respect for Jesus, uh, out of a genuine desire to hear him even, because of how he treats Jesus. It seems that Simon is also aware, kind of on the side here, of how controversial Jesus is and how he is falling out of favour with the religious leaders. Because, because although he impresses the public by getting Jesus into his house, he then acts just about as rudely as is possible toward Jesus. <coughs> you know, custom was when you had a guest into your house, welcome them as a guest with a kiss of peace. To not do so was to withhold peace. To wash a guest's feet as they came in off of the dusty, dirty streets. You know, like agricultural society. Imagine what's sitting there on the road, right? And even to anoint an honoured guest's head with a little bit of oil. These actions were part of what differentiated the guest from the onlooker, right? The table guest from the person on the walls. Yet Simon skips these because he, whilst he invites Jesus in, he doesn't welcome Jesus in. So Simon sees Jesus as a prop, as a tool for his reputation, for building it up. But that's, not, that's nothing compared to how he sees this woman. When he looks at her, he doesn't see a, per a person, he sees a problem. He sees a thing to be avoided. He sees her touching Jesus and we read that he thinks to himself, if he was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of a woman she is. He'd know what she is and he wouldn't let her near him. I wouldn't go near her with a 10-foot pole. Doesn't that just say, you know, Simon would never have let this woman near him. He looks at her and he thinks, she's what's wrong with society. You know, her kind are wrecking my town. The best duty I can do for myself and for society is to avoid her at all costs. But this is where Jesus does the does the Jesus thing, right? And he brings Simon's thoughts out into the open and shows him how wrong he is. Jesus tells Simon this parable about the money lender who forgives two people's debts. The point for the woman we'll get to later on, but the point of it in relation to Simon is fairly abrupt when you think about it, right? Jesus says, he who has been forgiven little loves little, but clearly Simon hasn't loved Jesus at all. Not even a little. And so this parable that emphasises the acceptance of this mess of a woman, as we will see, also points out that Simon's self-centeredness and self-righteousness are symptomatic of having not received forgiveness. It also says that he needs forgiveness. And it does also say that forgiveness is on offer to him, even if he hasn't accepted See, Simon hasn't believed in Jesus, and Simon hasn't received grace. And what happens next is, I think, 
probably the most striking of the words in this whole story. These should inform, I think, the way that we read this whole thing. Jesus turns to the woman, he looks at her and he says, Do you see this woman? Do you see her? What, what an absurd question, right? Of course he sees her. Of course she's there. He can, he's got eyes. But what Jesus is saying is that Simon, when he looks at this woman, he doesn't see her. He doesn't care at all for her. He just sees a problem to be avoided. If he really saw her, he would see that she is a woman broken by sin and being restored by grace. But instead, he doesn't see her. He sees a problem. If he really saw her, he would see a human made in the image of the God that he claims to worship and in need of restoration. But he sees a problem. Really, Simon sees her through the same lens that he sees Jesus, the lens of self-interest. What can this person do for me? And the answer with her is, she can get out. She can leave. You see, for Simon, not believing is not seeing. He is blind to seeing people as God sees them because Simon doesn't believe in Jesus the one that God sent. He has not received the grace of God that drives a person to see others through the lens of grace. And before we go too far down the road of judging Simon, here's a, here's a big question. Are we really so different to him? This is, this is one I want anyone listening to this to really consider for themselves. Our tendency is always to think about the person next to us or the person we don't like or the person who is on our mind and think, wow, this is really relevant to them. I, I Put them out of your head. Think of yourself right now. Are you like Simon? It's hard to, to measure sometimes whether we use people for our own benefit or whether we tend to do that or, or, or for our own reputation. Um, perhaps... A good diagnostic would be to think through the last five people that you had in your house or, or the people you've had in your house over the last month, although I just had the thought of coronavirus. Six months then. How many of them were people you stood to gain nothing from? Better still, how many of them were costly to have in your life? How many were emotionally draining people? Needy people? People who ask for things and give nothing in return? If your answer is none of them, then it's worth considering if we might have more in common with Simon than we like. Like him, the only people we're active in welcoming in are the people who we personally gain from. Simon would have said that he cared for the poor, though perhaps not the sinners, because he was a Pharisee, but, but he prioritised the influential. And when it comes right down to it, the people you care for are the people that you 
prioritise caring for. Perhaps the other way to approach whether we're like Simon, uh, more like Simon than we'd like to admit rather, is that is to ask what you might have done in the same situation with this woman there. And perhaps we can't know for sure until we, until we live through something similar. But seriously, when you really put yourself in the shoes of Simon, in, in this scenario, it's hard not to think you might have been embarrassed, I think. Um, perhaps you might have tried to quietly usher the woman out. Perhaps you might have tried to distract the conversation and ignore her. And at, would you, like Simon, see her as a problem to be avoided? Similarly, but, but more broadly, how do you see broken people? You know, here's some broader questions on that same subject. When someone sits down to talk to you and it turns out they want to talk about their brokenness, they want to talk about a horrible situation in their lives, they have some deep-seated issues in themselves that they want to talk to you about. Or when you, when you meet a person, but then every second word they speak just sends up that red flag that they are going to be work. Or, or when, when, you, uh, when you meet a dysfunctional individual who wants to talk to you about their broken life. Is your tendency, is your, is your tendency to follow the instinct that says it's time to start checking your watch? It's time to start looking for the way that you're going to make your polite exit from this conversation. Come up with the simplest answer that will get you out of this fast. We need to hear what Jesus says here really clearly. That kind of self-interested life reveals at the very least that we haven't understood the grace that is ours. And at the very most that we don't have the grace of Jesus in our lives. I realise how serious those words are. Which is why we seriously need to consider them. Now let's move on to, to character number two. In this true story. This is, this is the big one. This is Jesus, right? And Jesus is about grace. And when he looks at people, he sees people in need of compassion. And do you see the contrast between Jesus and Simon here? It's, it's fairly obvious. We can take some obvious facts about Jesus from this situation, but, but there's more to it than that, actually. There's something under the obvious. Uh, here's, here's the obvious and even on their own striking facts here. First, Jesus offers grace to everyone. His parable of forgiveness implies that both Simon and the woman have the offer of grace. The offer of forgiveness. Second, Jesus representing the triune God loves this woman and forgives her sin. Right there he has gone beyond what Simon and, and probably what any of us would have done in our own natural inclination in this situation. Nothing she had done deserved it. But Jesus chose to save her out of sheer love. It's pretty clear here. His forgiveness precedes her love. 
His little parable makes it clear the love that she is showing reveals that she has already been forgiven. She's already received it. She's not trying to get on Jesus' good side. She's rejoicing in being on his good side, being in his grace. Whether she has heard him speaking publicly or, 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 or spoken to him in person or what, we don't know when she was forgiven. Uh, but, but think a bit more closely. Here, here's, here's where it gets a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more detailed. A bit more closely and perhaps we'll get a better feel for the magnitude and the specificity of God's grace that's displayed here. And, and, and the, that works out in the same way, by the way, in our lives. You see, we might be so devoted to the big picture of the gospel story sometimes that we miss the beauty in the details. And so we really need to pay attention to how this, this scenario, this moment fits in context and exactly what it is that Jesus does here. Because it is, it's striking. <laughs> Jesus is at a shared public dinner, as we've said, at the Pharisees' house surrounded by influential people and the general public alike, right? And when this woman comes up and does things that would make most people deeply uncomfortable and embarrassed, but are from a genuine heart, Jesus is struck, is, is stuck with the situation of how does he respond? And, and I love the contrast, particularly that we see there just before he asks Simon the crucial question, do you see this woman? It says, it says, what does it say? Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see that? Jesus sees her. In fact, he makes a point of it. Remember, he's, he's lying down, legs away from the table, reclining at the table. Right? Probably on a cushion. Just by the by. So, so to turn to her is to do what was actually a really rude act, which was to turn away from the rest of the dinner guests and put his attention on her. She who didn't consider herself worthy to anoint his head but went for the feet and he turns to her and he cares about her now jesus already knows at this point that the pharisees do not believe him capable of forgiving sins they've questioned that in the past in fact they see it as blasphemous as a serious crime against god when jesus says that someone's sins are forgiven and so in the moment, as he looks at this woman, Jesus has a set of scales in his head going on, right? On, on the one hand, the danger. And on, on the other side, you know, the danger to his own life from the authorities that be. And on the other side, he has his love for her. The Bible says, this, this is interesting, this is relevant to this. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, that he was tempted in every way that we are tempted. Imagine the temptations you would feel in this situation. The things the devil would throw at you. All I have to do is delay the conversation. I don't need to take this head on. 
Get rid of her here. Just, just make up for it later. It'll be fine. Isn't your life worth just as much as hers anyway, Jesus? More even. Imagine how much greater that temptation would have been for him than for us. He knows that it is for actions like this, like forgiving this woman, that he will eventually be so hated by the religious leaders that they will brutally kill him. Jesus foresees it, foreknows it. He says it a number of times in his ministry and he knows it here and now in this moment that they will kill him for things like this. This is one step in it. He knows that every choice to display God's grace in forgiveness takes him a step further down in the eyes of the powers of the day and a step closer to the cross. And he decides that his love for her outweighs his love for his life. And so he says, she's loving much because she has been forgiven much. And he looks into the face of the woman that Simon couldn't see and he says, your sins are forgiven. And in so doing, he removes from her the burden of her death and he places it on himself. He puts it on his own shoulders in a really real way, in a way that leads him to the cross. What Jesus does here is he throws himself under the bus for this woman. In this very moment, he chooses to step one step closer to brutal death because he loves us sinners. He loves us. Just, just stand in awe, right? In grateful wonder. Grateful because he doesn't just do this for her, he does it for us. He does it for you. Every step Jesus took, every move that he made was for the purpose of going to the cross to die for you, not just for her. He throws himself under the bus right here in what we're reading actually for the personal salvation of everyone who will come to believe. And every time we experience his grace in forgiveness, it is rooted in the very costly, very intentional work of Jesus in paying for our sin. Stand in awe. Our Saviour is amazing. Our God is for us. He didn't even spare his son. Jesus chose to come chose to step every step towards that cross and make every choice to be gracious and forgiving and loving and the presence of God in this world. Can we note here as a significant aside that the sacrificial nature of Jesus' love for this woman is how loving broken people is. It just is. It doesn't always mean stepping toward brutal death to love a broken person, but it is always costly. It's always sacrificial. If you're waiting for the easy chance to love someone broken, it ain't coming. You know, Tim Keller is an American preacher and, and he's a good one. And he said, and I think this just captures it really beautiful. He, he wrote this. 
If you ever try to love somebody who has needs, somebody who is in trouble or who is persecuted or emotionally wounded, it's going to cost you. You can't love them without taking a hit yourself. A transfer of some kind is required so that somehow their troubles, their problems transfer to you. All love, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. You've never loved a broken person. You never, you've never loved a guilty person. You've never loved a hurting person except through substitutionary sacrifice. You know, the costly love of Jesus always cost him. And the love that we are called to as his followers uh, is the same. Our love for the broken, for the sinners, for the poor, it will always cost you. <coughs> I love Keller's words there, substitutionary sacrifice. He's not saying that it's substitutionary in the same sense that we talk about Jesus being a substitutionary atonement uh, on the cross being a substitute in the, for the punishment of God for us. He's saying that whenever you love someone in their brokenness, you take something of it on yourself. You substitute yourself for them in a way. You pay a price from your own fullness for their brokenness. When you let someone confess their sin to you or, or talk to you about the brokenness in their life, you take some of the emotional burden of that on yourself, for instance. If you are looking out for a person who is poor, it can take a very real hit to you financially. If you care for a person who has been emotionally broken by childhood trauma or, or some other cause, it's, it's emotionally exhausting, isn't it? Let's ask ourselves the hard question here. Are we more like Simon or like Jesus? Are you? Am I? Once again, for yourself, do you see people as problems? When you're confronted with a person's brokenness, do you listen to the instinct to check your, check your watch and get going? Or do you give sacrificially of yourself for others? For a person who needs it, even at the cost of your own interests? Perhaps a good question, perhaps a vital question, is where does the power come from to be like that? And actually, we see that, uh, that answer to that question fairly clearly when we come to the perspective of the third person here. Now, we've said a lot about this woman already. Uh, and uh, uh, as we've talked about Simon, as we've talked about Jesus, but, but there's two, uh, two or three crucial things that I want to, uh, to note about her here. I want us to see. We really ought to pay attention to this woman, by the way. Uh, there's a really good reason. Because our tendency in this story might be to look at it and think, am I like Simon or like Jesus? Now, I did just ask you that question. <laughs> because there's some validity to asking that. But, but we should learn about ourselves from Simon, uh, about what not to be, and, and, and from Jesus about what to be. But, but the plain fact of the matter in this story is that if you're a Christian... 
the person you should realistically identify the per identify with the person that you are is this woman this woman is the broken sinner in need of forgiveness who has found to her joy that God gives it freely in the person of Jesus if you have believed in Jesus that's you she's us here Christians your sin might not have been as obvious as hers, but it was as serious as hers. It is as serious as hers. God says through the Bible that the wages of sin is death. All sin. Everyone who is apart from God is in one group condemned to death by sin. But everyone who comes to Jesus is saved from their sin in his loving grace and so this woman this real historical woman is us in this story <clears throat> and you remember we said that simon was all about public opinion well this woman is the dead opposite of simon isn't she she is oblivious to the public to the respected Pharisee whose house she is in, to the watching public, to the respected figures around her, to the potential serious ramifications of her actions. All of her attention is focused in grateful love on Jesus. So here are the, here are the things that we need to see when we see this woman. First, believing in Jesus is seeing the truth. He loves me and that's all that matters. Don't, don't we see this so clearly here? Why does this woman rush into this place? Luke tells us why. It's because she heard that Jesus was there. Can you imagine the conversation, right? She's hanging out downtown, two, four, five blocks away from where, where this dinner's going down, and she's talking to some people, and one of them goes, Oh, hey, did you, did you hear that guy, uh, Jesus? What, uh, uh, yeah, Jesus is in town. Apparently he's down at the house of Simon the Pharisee. <laughs> what a poser, that Simon. Man, I wouldn't go near that house with a 10-foot pole. What are you... What, where'd you go? She's gone. <laughs> as soon as she knows that the house is where Jesus is, she knows that it's where she needs to be. And she is so overwhelmed with gratefulness towards Jesus that he gave her the free grace of God that no one else would have offered her or even considered offering her, that in him, her sin, which she knew was huge, was forgiven. She's so grateful that she doesn't care what the onlookers think. Nothing else matters. She needs to be where Jesus is, gratefully praising him. If, if, you're, a, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is how you're called to live. Living in gratefulness to Jesus is, is kind of the, the snapshot phrase of how a Christian should live. Actually, let, let's go one step further. This is the only way to live that makes sense if you've received the grace of Jesus. If you know that he loves you. If you know that, then your eyes are always to be foremost on him. And following him is to orientate everything else that we do. The whole life thing, knowing that Jesus loves us. And really, that, that just ties into the second big thing that we see here, which is that believing in Jesus frees us to forget ourselves and the opinions of others. 
Do you see how self-forgetful this woman is? She's so focused on Jesus, so certain that his grace is enough for her, that she doesn't need to focus on proving herself to anyone. And you know, these two things, knowing the love of Jesus and, and forgetting ourselves, that's what we need to be able to love others genuinely, to be like Jesus. When you're free from the opinions of others and when you're receiving the unending grace of Jesus, then you're freed to actually love people. Have you ever, have you ever feared the opinions of other people? I have. So much that you're afraid to tell them about Jesus or afraid to speak the love of God to them for fear of their rejection. That's, that's natural. It's okay. But there's an answer in that situation, did you know? An answer to bring to that fear, to rebut it. And it is to look to Jesus and remember that his grace is what defines you, not what this person thinks of you. And so believing in Jesus frees us to see others through the eyes of his grace. I'll say that again. Believing in Jesus frees us to see others through the eyes of his grace. The power of receiving God's grace in Jesus, looking to a gracious Saviour who loves us day in and day out, and in spite of our failings, it gives us the power to love broken people and to live that life of substitutionary, sacrificial love. We can't do it without him. You know, we'd, we'd run out, to be real. Uh, we, we would empty ourselves and then be incapable of caring for the broken and the needy. But if we have grace coming to us daily, filling us from Jesus, then we are truly able to live outside of ourselves and our resources genuinely care for others and love others who are in need. If we understand the grace upon grace that we receive in Jesus, then that grace will pour out of our lives towards others. Jesus, Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love us so much. Thank you that you threw yourself under the bus for this woman and you do it for us. That every step of your earthly life walk towards the cross with intention. That every step you faced, every temptation that we would face, and yet at every step you chose to save us and to keep going. Your love for us outweighed your love for your life and so you went to the cross thank you lord thank you that you see us lord help us to believe help us to trust in you and so to change how we see help us to see 
those people that we would have seen as a problem, as the issue with society, as the problem in our lives, as the thorn in my side. Lord, help us to see them with the compassion of Jesus and to offer you, to offer your grace to them and to love them like you loved this sinful woman. Help us, Lord, to to trust your love for us and so to love well. In Jesus' name.